Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nyga. There's a lot to talk about on today's show as we return to conversations about uh, political news. Many of you were with us yesterday when uh, we had a fascinating uh, conversation about ACT UP, the uh, radical uh, political uh, loose confederation of, of organizations that fought so hard to change how the country viewed HIV AIDS and changed regulations that uh, to this day have made uh, people dealing with HIV AIDS uh, have better access to medications and uh, many other advantages that they didn't have before. That's still available, of course, on our website or as a podcast, and I would invite you to take a listen if you didn't get to hear it yesterday. Um, let's get right to today's panel. Greg Bluestein is here because it's Wednesday, and he's our Wednesday AJC partner on the show. Greg, do you mind telling people where you're just back from? <laughs> Yeah, I left for Iceland um, shortly after last week's show and spent, spent about a week there and it just had a blast. It went glacier hiking and waterfall caving and um, just roamed uh, throughout the, what, what I thought was a surprisingly big country, um, driving around with some friends on a, on a little bit of a guy's trip. It was a blast. What's the temperature uh, like in Iceland in June? You know, in the summer, it's it, we, we had pretty much nonstop sunlight. Uh, it, the sun didn't step set till around two a.m. in the morning, and even then, it wasn't that dark. And the temperature was like kind of in the forties and fifties, so uh, Ooh, not, not exactly bad. balmy. But uh, but you know, we had pretty good weather. It didn't rain too much. It always rains there, but it didn't rain too much. And and it was windy, but not you know, uh, not tornado windy. <laughs> well, thank thank you for scheduling your trip so you'd be back in time for today's political rewind. We're very happy. <laughs> about that. Uh, professor Andre Gillespie, Emory University political science professor and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at um, Emory, joins us. Uh, any big plans for the summer, Andre? Are you going on an Iceland-like trip? Uh, I wish. No. No no trip like that. <laughs> I think I'll be stateside this summer um, just trying to get work done, trying to write and, you know, get all the things done that need to get done before classes oh, again. Oh, man, I always thought being a professor or a teacher meant you had summers off. I have learned my lesson from you and others on our panel who are political science professors. Well, I'm glad you're with us today, Andra. Eric Tannenblatt is back with us. He's a longtime Republican insider, worked for uh, any number of Republican presidents and presidential candidates, was uh, the uh, chief of staff for uh, Governor Sonny Perdue during his first term. And uh, Eric is the uh, global chair of public policy for Denton's, the world's largest law firm. How are you, Eric? I am doing well. Can I ask Greg a question um, about Iceland? When, when you were in Iceland, how did you keep up with all the political news in, in America? <laughs> you know, we had cell reception. Every, even on top of a glacier, we had cell reception. It was kind of insane. Um, but I tried to tune as much of it as possible out. And I got some text messages and got some tips while I was there. But forward to the month to my office. <laughs> 
right. Um, also joining us today, and we're awfully glad to have him back, Howard Franklin, who is the managing partner of Ohio River South, which is a, a government relations firm. Howard, you do some uh, political consulting, but you've told us that it's sort of something you're getting away from. But here's why I saved you for last, Howard. You, before the show, you told us all something that I don't, I don't think any of us knew. And that was that you started your political career working for Maynard Jackson after Maynard left office. And one of the reasons I mention it today, right now, is that Angelo Fuster, who all of us know is a longtime operative in city politics, he worked for Maynard, sent out a note yesterday uh, reminding us all that today, Wednesday the 23rd, is the 18th anniversary of the death of Maynard Jackson. And, and Angelo Howard sent out a, um, a quote that uh, he took from John Lewis's funeral oration about Maynard. Here's what John Lewis said. I truly believe that Maynard Jackson must be looked upon as one of the founding fathers of the new Atlanta, the new South, and the new America. Maynard Jackson allowed himself to be used by the spirit of history because of the leadership, the vision, and dedication of just one man. Our city, state, and nation will never be the same. Howard, uh, it must have been a thrill as a young man to have worked for Maynard Jackson. It absolutely was uh, a singular honor. Um, and it's crazy that Angelo posted that note. You know, the beginning of my career, I was 22 years old. I'll be uh, 42 in a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, I was also with him when he passed away had, of a heart attack at Reagan National in D.C. And so just the outpouring of love and support and respect for who he was and what he had accomplished in this city and across the country. Uh, definitely just the defining moment at the beginning of my political career. And, you know, I, he touched so many other people, too, that I, I get to talk to on a near daily basis. So thank you for making that mention. Yeah. A larger-than-life figure, both in terms of his impact on policy, but also as an individual. You always knew when Maynard Jackson was walking into the room. Eric, you're nodding as I say that. Yes. In fact, I remember, and Howard, this may surprise you, but he showed up at a George H.W. Bush uh, political event uh, right after President Bush got elected in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> Andre, as long as we're taking a couple minutes to mention uh, Maynard Jackson, we do have to re remember that he was the first African-American um, mayor of a major southern city, right? Yes. Um, so in, in his path to the, to the mayoralty was, uh, you know, really interesting. Um, he, he really kind of established himself as a political figure by running for statewide office. Um, and so, uh, and so like using that as a strategy and then taking that defeat and turning it into, in, into hey, you know, in the city getting elected versus what was then vice mayor, which would be kind of the equivalent of the city council president today. Um, and then mayor of 1973, he's part of that first wave of black mayors who are getting elected in major cities across the country um, in uh, the aftermath of the civil rights movement. And he took a lot of incoming. There was still a lot of resistance from the African-American business community, but he used that to make demands and to make sure uh, that, in particular, at the African-American middle class was actually well represented in city government. So his demands for um, affirmative action, 
um, in the city, one helped to build this notion of the black Mecca that we think about today that did, you know, didn't include everybody, but did actually establish Atlanta as a place where black professionals could, could, could thrive. Oh, thank you for that perspective. All right, Greg Boostin, let's dive right into some breaking news. The Jolt this morning had quite an interesting item uh, that uh, nobody knew about until we saw it uh, uh, in online this morning. Corey Lewandowski, who, of course, is uh, Donald Trump's former campaign manager, uh, made an appearance on what I assume is a right-wing talk show in which he made the comment, Greg, that although he himself, Lewandowski, is not working for a candidate in the, in the Georgia governor's race, he has talked to, quote, what I think is going to be a phenomenal candidate for governor, and I think that at the end of the day, this person gets in. Now, whether that's going to happen or not, it's equally important, uh, Greg, that uh, Lewandowski said this, quote, Brian Kemp is not a king. He doesn't just get to decide that he's going to be the governor and not have anyone challenge him. The person I've been talking to is going to who's going to run for governor has held elective office in the state of Georgia. He's a known commodity. He has a great story. He's been elected in an area where traditionally Republicans don't get elected, and he's willing to take this fight directly to Brian Kemp, and it scares the hell out of the establishment. Even if no candidate emerges, those, those comments by Lewandowski about Kemp <laughs> uh, really throw a monkey wrench in what Kemp would like to see as a smooth path to his uh, renomination. Yeah, you're exactly right. This tells me two things. One is that Governor Kemp still, we already knew this, but, but Governor Kemp still has a lot of work to do to shore up the conservative base, still peeved at him for not, uh, in their view, not doing enough to, to help Donald Trump's false claims of election fraud in Georgia. Um, and secondly, that that pro-Trump wing is not all that enthused by the prospect of Vernon Jones being their candidate. Vernon Jones being the former Democrat turned Republican state lawmaker who's taken, not only does he have a controversial past, but he's also taken a lot of stands uh, against Republican priorities, including voting against the anti-abortion bill uh, in 2019. So um, still a lot of unrest, but from my, from my best get, from my best theory at least, and from talking to a lot of Republicans, um, who he's talking about is a is a businessman named Ames Barnett, um, who uh, you might not have ever heard of him. A lot of a lot of political folks have never even heard of him. But he is the owner of a local construction firm. He's a member of the Department of Economic Development's board, and he is he checks the box of winning election in a Democratic leaning area because he was the two term mayor of the little city of Washington, a city of about four or five thousand people, East Georgia, that's majority black. So um, he has held elective office. Um, he has a, he would have a lot of he would have to dip deep into his own pockets. I have no idea how much he's worth, but he'd have to go write a big check to himself in order to even be a viable candidate against someone like Governor Kemp. Um, but another name, you know, we've always said uh, Governor Kemp has avoided a credible, serious threat so far. But there's other names out there, too, who could still get in this race as well. Eric. Well, well, first I'll say, as, as was said, that if I was Vernon Jones, I wouldn't be happy about this because he's been, you know, trying to court uh, President Trump's support, and clearly he's not going to get it. Uh, I do think it's going to be very difficult for someone uh, that is not well known uh, to jump in this thing right now, unless you know they have a lot of money and. You know, things are, are good in Georgia right now, and the economy is only getting stronger. And I think that Governor Kemp 
uh, is only going to become even stronger uh, as we approach uh, the, the election. I think what this does say to me, which is unfortunate, is that the former president uh, still seems to be uh, obsessed with uh, Georgia and the governor. And as we witnessed in the Senate runoff back in December, uh, the party was not unified. And I think if the Republicans want to be successful in November 2022, they have to be unified. And I don't think the former president is helping uh, by continuing to stir the pot. Um, Andra, we don't know whether uh, this uh, this uh, construction uh, operator, uh, Ashley Barnett, is in fact the man who Corey Lewandowski is talking about. But I do think it's worth mentioning that, you know, he's the he was the mayor of Washington, Georgia, tiny little community. And we know how difficult it is, whether it's him or not, for anybody outside of Metro Atlanta. And I, I think Athens, which is, of course, Brian Kemp's hometown, kind of qualifies as part of Metro Atlanta these days. Pretty hard to get elected uh, outside of the metro area, Andra. Most interesting about this is that assuming that Corey Lewandowski wasn't bluffing. Um, and that that's a, a reasonable possibility that they're just talking and, and just kind of stirring the pot a little bit, um, is that they're trying to create a narrative and they look for candidates that they think will disrupt sort of the mold that Donald Trump exacerbated, that Republicans don't like diversity, that Republicans are going to be um, hostile to the interests of people who are, you know, in urban communities and people of color. And so you go and you find a self-fundable candidate who uh, was mayor of a tiny black hamlet. And you want to see, see, we're not racist. Like, and, and, and that actually falls flat. And it actually underscores the idea that while many Republicans, uh, you know, talk the language of not playing identity politics, they're playing identity politics on the cheap in a way that actually is somewhat amateurish. Um, and so it doesn't mean that if Barnett were to get in the race, he were able to sell funny, were able to get his name out there, that he couldn't actually be a force in this race. But there's something about this that is deeply problematic and actually really transparent. And it's not just manifesting itself here. It's manifesting itself in all the talk around Herschel Walker, too, which I know we'll get to a little bit later. So, um, you know, I just think it's important to kind of call it out and to just say, yeah, this is way too transparent. And I'm not sure that it's necessarily the most effective. The final thing I'll say is, we still don't know for sure yet, but I guarantee you, I or one of my colleagues is going to write the story about how effective Donald Trump's endorsements really are. My working hypothesis is, is that they're not as effective as I think people think that they are. I think he's really good at picking sort of people who were already going to win in their own right and then taking credit for stuff that he had nothing to do with. Howard? Yeah, I, I agree with you, um, Professor. I think there's uh, something definitely, you know, as an undercurrent, deeply problematic about the way um, this president is picking, uh, his, you know, his emissaries, his vessels for the races that he's getting into. Um, but And I, I don't know that it's worth counting out if this is, in fact, uh, the candidate who Corey Lewandowski was speaking of. You know, there's something about, obviously, his ability to marshal resources and enthusiasm for his own race, but there's also something to be said you know, for taking advantage of the ongoing, you know, civil war uh, in the Republican Party. And until it gets settled, Democrats in the state are not going to have real partners in government. And I think that's also something that we've, you know, need to decry here as a part of 
uh, this president deciding that he's not going to go quietly into the night. Um, so, Eric, you're fairly convinced, before we move on, that although Brian Kemp remains unpopular among certain segments of the Georgia Republican base, I mean, there's still a lot of anger uh, among those who uh, think that he should have tried to do everything in his power to stop uh, or really exceed his power and stop uh, Trump from being uh, Biden from being declared the winner here. You, you think when it comes right down to it uh, that Kemp is likely to prevail and and win renomination? I do, and I think he's going to become stronger and stronger as uh, you know we continue to see the economy recover. We're about to approach the end of the fiscal year, and we've already heard about the surplus that the state is going to have. We haven't even uh, gotten the uh, federal, all the federal dollars distributed that's coming from Washington on top of the surplus that we have. So I think, you know, the economy is going to be in a, in a good place. And, you know, when a uh, incumbent is running for reelection, uh, it's about the incumbent. And I think people are going to look back and see how uh, Brian uh, Kemp led the state through uh, the pandemic. And if we're in good economic times, I think he's going to be uh, in good shape. Look, I, I've been around politics a long time, and there's always a loud minority uh, in our party. Um, I'm sure the Democrats have that, too. And I think you hear what you're hearing. You know, there are some people that are, you know, may not be as supportive of Governor Kemp, and they're loud, and we seem to focus on them. But I, I really think that the, the governor has done some good things, and I think as we get closer to the election, he's going to have the resources to get his message out, and we'll end up being the nominee, and I think we'll get reelected. So, Greg, as long as we're talking briefly about Kemp and reelection, uh, let's talk for just a minute about Stacey Abrams and um, and the expectation that she is going to jump in the race. We, we've said on this show before that Abrams, uh, Greg, is in a, a pretty advantageous position. She is obviously extremely well-known. She has incredible ability, the ability to raise money at a moment's notice and is a, prof, a proficient uh, fundraiser. So there, there hasn't been any reason for her to try to declare herself too early to jump into this race. But... As long as we've talked about Kemp, what are you hearing about when Abrams will announce that she is going to be a candidate, assuming she is? And in the meantime, who else might be out there who th would think about getting into a race if for some reason Abrams decides she'd rather be writing novels? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, the friends and allies of Stacey Abrams who I've talked to will say either on the record or on background that as sure as the sun rises, Stacey Abrams is going to run. There's no there's no talk from anyone in her circle that she's not going to run. She's also in no rush, as you mentioned. Um, right now, it seems like she's tying up some other business interests and in, in loose ends. Uh, she's helping raise money for a, a venture, uh, for, for a new fund. She is uh, just got another two-book deal um, to follow up her, her current bestseller that's out. She's on a nationwide book tour that really wraps up in the winter. Um, and that's probably my best estimate to when she might get in. It might be later on this year. Um, and she's got the full-throated support of the Democratic establishment here. And the other big thing I'm not hearing is I'm not hearing whispers from anyone around her um, of saying, hey, you know, 
I might be interested if if Stacy's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. there's not that really full fledged conversation. You start hearing if someone look. Remember back uh, two years ago when there was the whole debate about whether or not Stacey Abrams would run for U.S. Senate. You were already hearing other candidates like Teresa Thomason raise their hand saying, "I'm in." If she's not, you're not hearing any of that right now. And it's we're much we're even further in the in the game right now. So, but look, there's still if she. If something changes, there are, uh, man, there's a deep bench now in the Democratic Party that did not exist, um, you know, five six years ago. Uh, the last time Democrats were in a completely wide open um, race, and uh, Michael Thurman, the DeKalb CEO, Lucy McBath, um, who's who's won in competitive territory and will face a really tough challenge in a in a challenging district because Republicans will almost surely redraw her district. So there's going to be there, there's there's other names out there in case she doesn't, but um, those conversations that, that that would be happening at the Democratic Party level, the senior Democratic Party level, I, I, I have no indication that they're happening if she's not going to run. Andre, if, if, if I can, I, I'd like to make a pivot uh, with Stacey Abrams in mind to what happened yesterday in the United States Senate. Joe Manchin had worked on a compromise to the what was called the For the People Act, the House uh, a bill which called for a, a broad transformation of federal election laws to counter Democrats, say, the restrictive laws that uh, they believe uh, Republicans like those in Georgia were putting in place in a number of states. Abrams got behind uh, the Manchin bill. She was uh, made an appearance on CNN that got a lot of attention uh, saying, yes, this is a step in the right direction. We need it. So let's we can talk about Abrams specifically in terms of that in a moment. But of course, uh, Andra, I'd love to get your thoughts about the fact that, as expected, when the bill was introduced by uh, Majority Leader Schumer, uh, Republicans filibustered and would not allow debate to proceed on the bill, much less a vote on it. Andra? Well, I mean, as you mentioned, nobody was surprised uh, that this happened to the For the People Act. And I think the question is, well, what is the aftermath of it? So first, it's the perceptions of both of the parties um, and what's going on here. So what Democrats are hoping is that Republicans just look like they're obstructionists. So a compromise is being offered. This could be debated as part of the bill. And Republicans are still saying no, even when the compromise actually included uh, components of the bill that Republicans have advocated for. So that begs the question of are Republicans objecting for objection's sake or, you know, is this substantive? And so what Democrats are hoping is that this just looks like they're obstructing for obstruction's sake. And that raises questions about whether or not the centrist um, in the Democratic caucus would actually be willing to relax their opposition to uh, renewing or revising the filibuster as a result of this. Like they see that, look, even when you try to make a good faith effort to compromise, these people just don't want to compromise on anything. And this is obstructing business. And also, I think for Stacey Abrams, I know that there was a lot of discussion about this. And Greg, I assume that you are not responsible for your headlines and sort of the notion of the Stacey Abrams wobble. Actually, I don't think it was a wobble. I mean, I think it was just her positioning herself to say, look, I recognize that when you're putting legislation together, sausage is being made. I'm not going to get everything that I want, but I'm actually going to make a good faith signal that I'm actually going to be willing to compromise on some issues. Um, you know, she's got folks on her left flank who like don't want to compromise about anything, but like that is strategically not optimal when you're actually trying to get things done. 
So I think that what Democrats are hoping is that they knew this defeat was happening, but that in the long run, this actually ends up making them look like they're the ones who are trying to get things done and actually trying to work towards a consensus. And they're just working with a Republican caucus in the Senate in particular who just does not want to play ball, period. Yeah, this is how I just want to agree with Andrea, you know, remembering, and I'm sure many of you do, who covered the General Assembly uh, when Stacey was minority leader, um, you know, I worked for her at the beginning of that period and lobbied her uh, shortly thereafter. And I remember, and I think she got a lot of plaudits for her willingness and ability to work with Republicans on major legislative issues um, and even relationships that she'd been able to build. And I think that, you know, that's a testament to her ability, uh, not only because the House Democratic Caucus was near a constitutional minority for the majority of the time that she was there, right? There were one or two seats from Republicans being able to pass constitutional measures with nary a Democratic vote, um, but also because on some of the biggest issues of the day, whether it was the reconstitution of the Hope Scholarship, whether it was the proposed uh, tax uh, reform, uh, a number of other you know, major issues, including an annual budget proposal, I think she got a lot of attention and plaudits for her ability to say, hey, I know this is the best deal I'm going to strike, you know, and I, I can intimate that both for the folks, the stakeholders outside who are watching me, but also for my, the members of my, my caucus. So I, I think this is, this is very much in line with the leadership she's shown over the years. Uh, and, you know, looking at the intransigence of this U.S. Senate, uh, it very well might be the best deal, but I, I think it, I think it's responsible of her to speak up on this issue. Um, Eric, let me bring you into the conversation and ask you this. I mean, uh, Andra points out that Democrats' best hope, and Schumer's using this strategy. He knows that a number of measures he brings up are going to get not going to get passed. The filibuster, infrastructure, uh, certainly uh, being another one. The um, the the Biden relief package, which had to be. Uh, done through reconciliation because it wasn't going to get past the Senate. So, so as, as Andrew points out, the effort is being made to make Republicans look like obstructionists. And, and Eric, um, how do you counter that? Because it seems quite clear that Mitch McConnell doesn't want to support virtually any measure that the Biden administration brings uh, forward on, on these large-scale efforts, at least. Well, look, I mean, I, I, we're, we're such a polarized uh, country right now. I mean, we have a 50-50 split in the Senate. And while, you know, President Biden talked about bipartisanship and bringing the parties together, we haven't seen that yet. And I think the vote yesterday in particular, we knew going into it uh, that that bill was not going to pass. And, uh, you, you know, even though Senator Manchin voted with the Democrats, you know, what would we end up with is a 50-50 split. And so I think that, I think people know how polarized we are as a as a country. So I don't think it's it's a surprise. I think people are frustrated with it. I wish I wish the parties uh, would come together and find things to work on together. I think we may see that with infrastructure in the next couple of weeks. At least it's looking like it's heading in that direction. But I think we're going to be in for a lot of these very partisan uh, votes on a, on a lot of these issues just because of the dynamics in Washington. I do want to talk about Stacey for a second, because um, to Howard's point, yes, she, she did work across the aisle when she was the minority leader in the, in the House in Georgia. But, you know, she has really become a national Democratic figure now. 
Uh, I mean, even giving the rebuttal to the State of the Union uh, when President Trump was in office. And so if she's going to come back and run for governor right now, she needs to get back to the Stacey Abrams, who was the House minority leader in Georgia, as opposed to Stacey Abrams, the National Democratic Party figure, because I think the state of Georgia uh, is not as as left as the National Democratic Party is. And she she is probably you know, she could be setting the Democratic Party up for for real failure if she decides not uh, to to run because I think everyone is banking on her running. But she's also created a situation for herself where she really is a national leader. She's making money. Uh, she's got, you know, she's in the business world now. She's writing books. And, you know, if she runs and loses, she's going to be at a very different place. And she's at a high watermark right now nationally. And does she want to give all that up and risk it? And as I said before, I think Brian Kemp is going to be a stronger candidate the closer we get to the election. So, I, you know, she's strategic and she's probably thinking about all of that. And I think jumping on board uh, with Senator Manchin may have been an indication that she recognizes that she has to get back to those roots that Howard was talking about, about working with the other side. Uh, Greg, I got to get to a break. But the, this latest uh, uh, filibuster uh, reminds me that I continue to not quite understand why you would want to run for the United States Senate. <laughs> to be part of a body of 100 people who basically don't get much of anything accomplished. Uh, and, and I want to share with you a quote that Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut uh, gave to a news organization yesterday in the aftermath of the, the uh, filibuster on the voting bill. This place can always make you despondent, he said. The whole exercise of being a member of this body is convincing yourself to get up another day to convince yourself that the fight is worth engaging in. But yeah, this certainly feels like an existential fight. I just don't get why you want to be in the Senate right now, Greg. Yeah, look, even when a party has complete control of Washington, like the Republicans had not, not a few years back and Democrats have right now, it is unbelievably hard to get anything substantial passed um, without going through all sorts of parliamentary tricks like rec budget reconciliation, like you saw with the coronavirus relief fund uh, package. And it's going to take something like that probably um, to get another substantial aid package through or something like, uh, you know, which we know is not going to happen, but for the for, for significant voting legislation, because they're not using the budget reconciliation process. There is hope, though. There is hope that a some somewhat bipartisan infrastructure package can be passed. There's a group of 20 lawmakers from both parties working on something. They'll lose votes on both sides, but there might be enough bipartisan consensus to get that one through. All right. We got to get to our first break of the show. Back with more on Political Rewind in just a moment. Professor Andre Gillespie, Democrat Howard Franklin, Republican insider Eric Tannenblatt, and the AJC's Greg Bluestein uh, join us today for Political Rewind. Um, one more note about the um, aftermath of the um, filibuster yesterday. Uh, Greg Bluestein, um, the Republican Senate Campaign Committee has already started running ads in various states that have uh, Senate elections uh, next year. Uh, uh, against the Democrats who voted for it. 
And there are those who uh, were concerned about the specific ad targeting Raphael Warnock uh, because uh, what the, the, the mansion bill has some uh, efforts to deal with uh, campaign financing and some public financing of campaigns. And in the Warnock ad, which they did not use in any of the other ads against Democrats, it talked about it being a welfare act for incumbents. And Greg, there are people who saw that as a racist trope. Yeah, and of course, uh, the Re Reverend Senator Warnock uh, grew up in public housing in Savannah. Um, it has been a pejorative that has been targeting uh, minority Democrats for, for, for a long time. Um, and as we noted in our story, an, an ad focused on Senator Hassan of New Hampshire did not use that same phrase. It's not like that was a universal phrase. It, that ad called it a Washington waste plan. Another ad from another similar group called it, uh, mocked that it wasn't rocket scientists. That ad was targeting Mark Kelly, a former astronaut. So, um, so uh, that has sparked a lot of concern among Democrats and got got the Republican uh, National Republican Senatorial Committee some 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 extra attention for its ad too. Some some earned media, we would say. Right. So, Andra, let me come back to you, because you pointed out just a minute ago that uh, at Republicans, uh, it appears, might be pretty good at trying to tr trying to suggest that they, in fact, are a broad tent party, that, yes, they care about African-Americans as candidates and as uh, uh, certainly as voters. Uh, so we keep talking Herschel Walker. Uh, Donald Trump has said over and over again that he thinks Herschel Walker should run for the Senate against Raphael Warnock. And now we have this odd uh, uh, social media post that we hadn't had a chance to talk about on the show until today, in which Herschel Walker is, who lives in Texas, holding up a Georgia license plate and saying something about Georgia's on my mind, getting ready to run. What, what Andre, is going on here from your uh, perspective? Well, you know, I still don't know if we know for sure whether or not Herschel Walker is actually going to run for, for the U.S. Senate, but he's at least keeping his name out there and keeping the possibility open by putting out this very, very coy ad. Um, and, you know, there's so much that I, I do find problematic about this. First, there's the idea of carpetbagging. Mm -hmm. Um, and so even though, you know, Walker is coming back to, you know, a state where he, you know, you know, where, where, where you know, where he definitely has roots. Um, the last time the, Repub uh, the Republicans tried this against an African-American candidate was in 2004 when Barack Obama was nominated for the Senate. And they kind of flew in Alan Keyes from Maryland to take up residency in Illinois because uh, the Republican, the original Republican nominee had to drop out uh, because of some nasty and savory details about his divorce coming out. So um, it's still the same thing, um, you know, slightly different, but it's still a little bit problematic. Um, and I think sort of the larger question is, you know, if, if Walker wants to establish residency in Georgia, he still has time to do it and to declare his candidacy. But I think there's a larger question of how is he going to look next to Raphael Warnock? So what Republicans who are rallying behind him, and I just want to talk about those who are doing this because, you know, it's not clear that everybody else is doing this at this point. What they hope is that they blunt the criticism of racism by putting up an African-American candidate. He's one that can excite particularly middle-aged white male voters who remember his glory days um, at, at, at UGA. So he's a compelling, charismatic candidate. But it, again, is sort of, uh, you know, returning to these cycles 
um, that I think are problematic of selecting candidates solely based on charisma um, and because they check off certain sort of descriptive boxes and not because they have anything that's particularly substantive to offer. So, you know, if, if, if Walker is serious about this, then he is going to have to do a lot to make sure that he's educating himself about, about the issues, about what Georgia looks like today and not what it looked like 40 years ago. Um, and he's got to be prepared to go against um, a senator, one who now has experience, who's been elected in his own right, who um, has trained um, to, uh, you know, be able to sort of address these kinds of issues, has more credentials than he has, and who, as a, a preacher, uh, is an orator who is rhetorically gifted. And so all I'm thinking of is looking at what that debate looks like. Um, and, you know, the all shucks charm of, of, of Herschel Walker is only going to take you so far if you can't substantively talk about issues in a way that Senator Warnock can um, and will do with ease um, on the debate stage. Um, Eric, is there to what extent do you think uh, Republicans are clamoring for a Herschel Walker? I voters are one thing. What if he's in the contest? It's one thing to think about how Republicans may react and want to vote for him. It's another to think about Republican Party leadership in Georgia. Well, look, there's no doubt uh, he's uh, someone who's well known and well regarded uh, as a football icon, and not as a candidate. And and I guess my uh, my appeal would if I was able to appeal to him would be if you're going to get in, get in now, because it does not help the uh, party in the long term uh, if he decides six months from now, you know what, I decided I'm not going to run. And, you know, we have some other candidates that are already in the race that, you know, I'm sure they're running up against people saying, well, I want to wait and see what Herschel Walker does. And there may be some other candidates that aren't in the race that are contemplating getting in the race if Herschel Walker doesn't get in the race. So just like I you know, mentioned what Stacey Abrams is going to do for Democrats if she doesn't run for governor, I think the same thing can happen on the Republican side for Herschel Walker. The other thing I'll say about Herschel Walker is that uh, we don't know what he's like as a candidate. And so let, he, he needs to get out there. Uh, you know, he's never run for office before. That's very different than, you know, playing football. And, you know, we need to know where he stands on issues and he needs to, you know, be out there meeting with voters. And uh, the sooner he can get there and get out there and do that, uh, the better. He's going to have to earn people's vote. He's not just going to be able to walk in, uh, especially when you're running against an incumbent. And, you know, Raphael Warnock has proven since he's been in the Senate that he's 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 pretty good at at being a senator. Now, not, you know, I, we can argue about the positions he's taking and the votes he's taken. And uh, but but in terms of filling the role of a senator and and so uh, it's it's tough running against an incumbent. But as we saw with uh, Senator Leffler, you, you can get beat with the right dynamics. So uh, I, I just uh, appeal to Herschel Walker, if you're going to run, get in, get in the game now. Well, I would suggest that Herschel Walker might face some of the same issues that uh, that Kelly Leffler did, which is as a rookie candidate, uh, she was at times very awkward and 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 really had a lot. We saw that she had a lot to learn about what it took to be a strong candidate, which, for all I know, she could become if she makes a race again. But Howard, we better be careful about how we treat sports heroes who get into politics, because we've seen very mixed results for that happening. Although, 
in Alabama, our next door neighbor, Tommy Tuberville, <laughs> was able to get elected to the United States Senate, uh, despite the fact that he thought the three branches of government were the president, the Senate, and the House. Uh, so you can get elected as a sports hero. Listen, uh, you know, I know there's plenty of comparisons to be made between Georgia and Alabama. I'm hoping, I'm praying, and, and relying on the empirical evidence that suggests that Georgia's trending in a different direction, has a different set of expectations um, for electing statewide, you know, statewide officers or folks who go to, um, you know, the August body of the United States Senate. So I, I, I agree that there are some uh, some exceptions that prove the rule, but I, I agree with also a number of things that I heard the professor and, and Eric also mention here. Um, you know, Tuberville is Alabama through and through. He hadn't lived the majority of his adult life in an totally different state, you know, uh, 800, 900 miles away. I do think that there's a lot of downside. Um, but, I, you know, also, I think to an earlier point that was made, this is kind of the Trump playbook. Pick a candidate. You know, don't worry too much about the infrastructure. Call the personality. I ride in on my high horse. I make an endorsement. That person wins or loses, right? If they win, we talk about it. If they lose, we move on. So I, I'm not too worried about it. I, I appreciate that Eric uh, and other members of the Republican Party are. Yeah, if I could just add one, one you know, you made the comment, Bill, about uh, Kelly Leffler. You know, the dynamics in that race were different, though, because you had a, a jungle general, but we were really running a Republican primary between Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler to see who was going to go up against uh, Raphael Warnock. And while that was going on, Raphael Warnock was pretty much ignored. And, you know, he had a free ride. And then when we... Uh, uh, got into the general election runoff, we were so we were all obsessed with the you know aftermath of the November election that again, I don't think that there was that much of a focus on Raphael Warnock. So this is going to be a different election if the Republicans nominate a strong candidate uh, through the primary process and we have a real general election between an incumbent U.S. senator and a challenger. Uh, the only thing I'll say before I get to a break, and Greg, you respond to this, is while I think everything Eric just said is true, it is still the case that Leffler showed us that becoming a brand new rookie candidate, you've got a learning curve and uh, it takes longer than you might expect to really become the kind of candidate you eventually hope you'll be. She had some rough uh, moments, certainly in debates particularly. Certainly. But, but Herschel Walker has something that she doesn't, which is near universal name recognition. Um, a lot of Republicans I talk to are feel like that Herschel Walker is being foisted upon them by by the Trump wing. Um, but look, he he's more likely to run right now than not. He still doesn't really uh, communicate with a lot of Republicans, either senior Republicans and activist crowds. Um, but that the, the party is almost held hostage by him right now. Uh, and you you already saw Gary Black say, "I'm not waiting anymore." But others are still yeah. waiting in the wings to see what he does. Andre, you want to get even a quick word before the break? So one final thing. I'm going to channel Alan Abramowitz here and just note that Raphael Warnock is a true incumbent in a way that Kelly Leffler was not. So having been appointed, it's a very different dynamic than having actually been outright elected to the position. So Warnock as the incumbent is in a much stronger position than Leffler was in, you know, even by the time we got to the runoff last year. Absolutely. A confirmation of uh, basically what uh, Eric Tannenblatt was just telling us. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind.
Greg Bluestein, on Political Rewind last Friday, we spent a good deal of time talking about the uh, fissures which the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting in Nashville last week really showed us more clearly than ever before between the extreme right wing and more cons- and more moderate to conservative members of SBC. So I think it's only fair to talk for a couple of minutes here about a huge political uh, rift that has developed in the Catholic Church. The U.S. Conference of of Catholic Bishops is moving toward a resolution that would deny President Biden uh, communion uh, because of his pro-life position. And for a practicing Catholic like Joe Biden, a devout Catholic, uh, that could be devastating. We should also say, though, that the U.S. bishops, who have always been very conservative in their political leanings, are at war with the Vatican. The Pope has asked them to stop this fight. Greg? Yeah, and just like we, you guys talked about last week uh, with the Southern Baptists, you mentioned it was, a, it was a show of force about a new conservative uh, movement that is ascendant, that is growing more powerful in the Catholic Church. Um, and I think it's fair to say we're seeing that in, 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 the, in the Baptist Church as well, um, and could be used as a political cudgel against, against President Biden. And it could ultimately be sort of theological justification um, to deny him communion, uh, which would be, as you, as you noted, a stinging blow to someone who is a faithful uh, church member and goes to church pretty much every Sunday. Um, you know, Andre, there's nothing new about this. There have been movements among Catholics for quite some time over the notion of denying the sacraments, communion particularly, to pro-choice uh, 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 politicians, political leaders. It's not new, but it's gained new strength. And it's just a reminder of how intense the divisions are now between uh, uh, people to the right and to the left in every aspect of our lives. Yeah, I mean, I can't say that this was a surprise. I remember, uh, because I was working for his poster uh, in 2004, that this issue potentially was going to come up against uh, John Kerry if he had been elected president. And so the difference between 2004 and today is not just an increasing polarization. It's the fact that Joe Biden actually was elected president. Um, and so, uh, you know, these conservative bishops want to, you know, affirm their pro-life stand, uh, but they also want to demonstrate that they think that nobody is above church law. The conflict here or the difference here is that this is not happening under, uh, you know, Pope Benedict. It's happening under Pope Francis. And the fact that they are actually willing to buck the Pope on this um, is a really interesting. I, you know, I say this as a Protestant, so, you know, this is not something about it. But that just strikes me as a, wow, I thought that like people listened to the Pope. And if the Pope said, stop, then you would stop that. I find that's interesting. I mean, I I think this is a panel completely of people who are not Catholics. But Howard, yes, we've always assumed, looking at the Catholic Church, that the Vatican and the Pope, the Pope is infallible. For goodness sake, Howard, <laughs> that is the thinking. I, you know, I, I'm not Catholic. I did go to Catholic school for about a decade. Um, fond memories for sure. I just I wonder whether or not this is something that hurts the president. And obviously, it'll have an impact on him personally, or something that hurts. The, the ability of the Republican Party or, um, you know, those who oppose abortion to be seen as good faith actors in this space, to punish a man who is obviously uh, a devout Catholic, who is obviously a religious and, you know, has and put his faith in the Lord, and who's really gone through a lot of trials and tribulations in the public eye over the course of his political career, political career it seems like a, a short-sighted ploy 
certainly, you know, maybe some upside and attention in, in the short term, but maybe not as much uh, upside as you might imagine in the long term. All right. Um, we will watch how that develops. Eric, you're welcome to weigh in on, it, but if, on that. But if not, let me give you a, a minute on this last subject we're going to take on before we have to leave. Um, a, a white supremacist organization has now in, gone to court suing uh, the, uh, I think it's the DeKalb County Commission. It may be the city of Decatur. I'm not quite clear on that. Nevertheless, the point is they're suing for the restoration of a monument to the lost cause that sat for generations in the uh, DeKalb uh, Square, uh, insisting that the removal of the statue was a violation of uh, state law, which which says that legislators have to approve that sort of thing. It's uh, important because if they prevail, uh, it's going to change how other jurisdictions may want to look for ways around that state law. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting case because I, I thought it was another judge who ruled that that was permissible. And and so, yeah, yeah so, so uh, you know, I, 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 it's interesting that they're doing this uh, a year after the fact, too. Um, so I, I'm not I'm not certain uh, how this is all going to play out. But I mean, I think the, the place. It, they need to take it to the legislature and get the state law changed uh, if uh, if that's something that uh, needs to be done. That's that's really the point, isn't it, Greg? That the that the state that Republicans put this law, what were able to to pass this law because of local jurisdictions that wanted to get rid of Confederate memorials, putting the uh, control in the hands of the legislature. And now we see the fallout uh, from that. It was a DeKalb County judge who found a way around that law and got the statute removed, the, m- the memorial removed. But the next, the question is, what happens next, Greg? And I thought the, the response from the Decatur city attorney was, was pretty much on point. He wrote that the Confederate group had more than three months to try to intervene and did nothing. And this is his quote. The petition they have now filed is factually incorrect, legally flawed, and procedurally deficient. In short, it is a lost cause. So he invoked uh, some of the lost cause stuff that, uh, <laughs> that they pushed. <laughs> a lost cause around the lost cause. We'll see how that plays out. We are out of time uh, for today's political rewind, but my gratitude to Andre Gillespie, Eric Tannenblatt, Howard Franklin, and of course, Greg Bluestein back from Iceland, just in time to do political rewind today. Thanks all of you for being with us. And thank you out there for being with us for today's show. Amelia Brock, Sam Burmas Dawes, Jesse Neiswanger, and I are always grateful to have you with us. We're back again tomorrow with another edition of Political Rewind. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. You figure out how you're going to use a mask when you need to. But if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. Then you'll be liberated. See you tomorrow.